Welcome to the Lucatino Show, where we can learn to reimagine our lifestyle. Dr. Mohit, thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on our show. I've been following your work. I've been seeing so many of your interviews. And of late, I've also been looking at some of the publications that you've put in journals that you've researched on and shared with experience and science. And it it kind of ties in with a lot that people are going through when it comes to infertility, testosterone levels, building muscle, sexual dysfunction. And so thank you for being on our show. And I think... I think to be fair to you, you should take us through your journey. There's so much that you've achieved and done in the health of, in, in the space of men's health and urology. So Dr. Mohit, thank you again. I know it's the end of your day, but you look fresh. You look fresh. <laughs> thank and strong. you. So I'm also going to ask you a little later what your secret is when it comes to your <laughs> exercise, your fitness levels, your food, sure. sleep, but over to you, Dr. Mohit, tell us about your journey. Tell us about why you got into this field and where you are today. Yeah. So listen, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's really an honor and a privilege to be here. Um, So the journey started, you know, my parents are from India. Uh, My dad is from Lucknow. My mom is from New Delhi. My father moved to the United States in 1969. And I was born in Connecticut. And we moved to Houston, Texas when I was two years old. Um, And, you know, I first uh, I went to college in Nashville, Tennessee. And after that, I decided I wanted to go into business. And so I went to business school and I was very fortunate. I was in Boston and my wife was doing med school at the same time. And we were able to meet uh, in the same dorm and we uh, got married. We came down to Houston. We have three beautiful children. I have uh, an 18 year old daughter now, a 17 year old daughter, 15 year old son. Um, And uh, I came and did my residency here at Baylor in 2000. When I finished in 2006, I had a choice. I could do a fellowship or go into practice. And I really was really drawn towards the field of sexual medicine and infertility. Huge unmet need. Uh, Many patients, I will talk about this, suffer in silence. They don't talk about it. But when you treat them, they are so appreciative. And it makes such a dramatic impact in their quality of life. Uh, So I did a fellowship for one year. And then in 2007, I stayed at Baylor. And I've been here now since 2007 on faculty. So that's my journey. Wow. And you, you've won so many awards as well. You contribute so generously with your content and your learnings on radio and magazines. And, and, and that's how, you know, your information connected us, the amount of stuff that you share out there. I've seen a couple of your interviews as well. And I think it's an honor to have you on the show today, because I know you can create so much of awareness about subjects that we're going to discuss today. The first being muscle and for men, for women, we know today muscle is connected with longevity, protection of bones. And we also know that there is a misuse of testosterone in the market, particularly, I mean, I have patients, a lot of my patients are in the US all over the world, but primarily in India, we have this misuse and overuse of testosterone growth hormones. So so doctor, if we had to break it down, and we're going to talk about men right now, when it comes to the function of testosterone, it's very easy to Google the foods that boost testosterone, but we also know that it doesn't have to work that way because it has its own mechanism in the human body. Doctor, can you educate us on testosterone and this whole confusion between free testosterone and testosterone in the blood? You know, what is the best way to check our testosterone levels so that we don't just think that we lack testosterone and we start using a lot of these, you know, non-genuine supplements, which further cause side effects? So, Luke, this is a very important topic. And remember that testosterone, patients who have low testosterone levels have certain symptoms. The following, low energy, low libido, erectile dysfunction, decreased fat, 
increased muscle, I mean, I mean de de decreased muscle, increased fat. These are signs of low testosterone. And many patients say, I don't understand what's happening. I think I'm aging. No, part of this is because your testosterone level is going down and it's affecting your quality of life. You are absolutely correct that the body only cares about the free testosterone. It doesn't care about the total. So we have a hormone in our body called SHBG, sex hormone binding globulin made by the liver. When the SHBG goes up, it binds to the testosterone and leaves very little free testosterone. So some patients who have a normal testosterone level actually have elevated SHBG and a low free testosterone, and that explains why they have symptoms. So it's very important to remember that when patients come in, they should have a low testosterone level and signs and symptoms, and they're eligible for treatment. And you're right. There are many, many uh, benefits, uh, but I will tell you for muscle mass, profound effect, and for osteoporosis and preventing osteopenia, profound effect. Very, very important for men and women. Right. So doctor, what happens in your line of treatment? You know, I mean, if you come across a patient who has exactly, and, and these are the common symptoms, low testosterone, free testosterone, and we see osteoporosis or the starting stage of osteopenia happening, you know, what do you recommend at that stage? I know you talk about hormone replacement as well, and I'd love to talk about that, you know, soon, but what are the tips that you would give people, you know, once they've looked at that? So number one, the blood parameter that we're looking for is going to be free testosterone. That's going to be our guide mark. Talking about the sex globulin hormone that you spoke about, what causes that to increase and decrease? Yeah, I would love to know about that. Sure. So remember, SHB, some people say, look, I want you not to increase my total T, but can you lower my SHBG? That's a clever way of thinking about it, but you can't. I mean, well, I'll be honest. So certain medications like androgens, testosterone will lower the SHBG, but SHBG is based on medical conditions. For example, hyperthyroidism will elevate as in pregnancy, oral contraceptive pills will increase, hypothyroid will decrease. So medical conditions if you improve those conditions, can change the SHBG. But typically in my practice, there's not a magic pill that makes a profound effect on changing SHBG levels. But don't worry, you can work around it. So if a patient's SHBG is elevated, all you have to do is raise the total T even higher so that there's more free T. You can work around it. So that's typically what we'll do is we'll raise the total T. For osteopenia and osteoporosis, there have been numerous studies. The T trials in the United States was a big trial that came out in the US showing that giving testosterone can actually increase bone mineral density on patients. This was a randomized placebo-controlled trial. Many other studies have shown this also. It takes at least three months to start seeing the benefit, but on most of the trials, every three months, it was statistically significant where you're putting bone back onto the body. So if a patient comes to me and they have osteopenia, osteoporosis, and they have low T, man or women, uh, I think giving them tea uh, in addition to exercise uh, is extremely important. So um, we take that very seriously. Okay, great. I, I'm, a, I'm aware in the U.S. it's highly regulated as well. Uh, in our country, it isn't really regulated at this point, And that's why there's a misuse of testosterone, because I know it gets other benefits as well. It's easier for people to put on muscle. And then when they you know, start to lose muscle, they want to continue growth hormone cycles and testosterone cycles. What are the negatives of misusing testosterone or the overuse of testosterone? Great question. So remember, the most important thing is that many patients do not know that if they take testosterone, it will make them infertile. 
So who generally takes the, who misuses the most are the younger men. They're in the gym, they're 25, 35 years old, and many of them don't realize that if they take exogenous testosterone, that will shut down their natural production of testosterone and will make them infertile. Now we can reverse it. That is true. We've published a paper showing that it can take anywhere from three to seven months to reverse uh, and start making sperm once again, but not everyone goes back to baseline. So an average man makes 80 million sperm per ml, and if you take him down to zero and then we reverse him, he may go back to 20 million per ml. So mm-hmm. yes, he did reverse, but he's not as fertile as he started, right? Wow. So many men need to be aware if you take testosterone, it can make you infertile. But there's other ways to raise testosterone. We can use medications to make a man make his own testosterone. And there are three ways to do that. We use a medication called clomiphene citrate. It makes him make his own testosterone, HCG injections, and sometimes we use aromatase inhibitors. So if you're a young man out there and you're thinking about preserving your fertility and you have low testosterone, think about ways to raise your natural testosterone. You don't need to take exogenous testosterone That's one concern is the fertility. The second thing is you have to worry about erythrocytosis. So if the red blood cell count gets too high, there's a theoretical risk that you can have increased cardiovascular event. The number we want to remember is 54. If the blood count gets too thick, the hematocrit gets above 54, there's a slight increased cardiovascular risk. That's been debatable in many literature, but just remember, you don't want it to go up. Some have described uh, uh, roid rage if the level gets too high. Some have described hair loss, Um, you know, but the main concerns are, you know, that we worry about are the um, infertility and the erythrocytosis. There is data now to suggest that it does not increase prostate cancer. That's a myth. When I was starting my fellowship, we were were taught you can't give testosterone because it increases the risk for prostate cancer. That is not true. Um, We know that that's not the case. Wow, that's amazing. And and doctor, for people with low testosterone, what are some of the things that can cause this in terms of lifestyle? We've seen the direct impact of sleep deprivation, stress in measured studies, but in your practice, what do you see in terms of the lifestyle impacting testosterone levels in most people today? Luke, the most dramatic thing is weight, obesity. Obesity has such a negative effect on testosterone, there are many mechanisms. The biggest mechanism is where testosterone is aromatized, it's converted into estrogen. So more fat cells will continue to eat the testosterone and convert it into estrogen. There's negative feedback with leptin that goes to the hypothalamus pituitary that shut down your pituitary production of LH and FSH, and you start making less testosterone. So if you look at the best study, this was by Camacho, and this was a study looking at the uh, European male aging study. If a man loses, 10% of his body weight, he can actually gain 100 nanogram per deciliter in testosterone. If he loses just 15% of his body weight, he gains almost 250 to 300 nanogram per deciliter. The best studies we've seen are in the bariatric surgery. When someone has a bariatric surgery, they lose 15% of the body weight, testosterone levels go up significantly. And conversely, if you actually, uh, you know, gain weight, you will lose testosterone as well. So I really stress the importance of weight loss on my patients. The four pillars, and you and I will talk about this multiple times, diet, exercise, sleep, and stress reduction. And I say this over and over again, I don't have a pill stronger on the planet than diet, exercise, sleep, and stress reduction. The problem is the patient comes in, he says, give me the pill. I say, that's not what you want. I will help you use the testosterone if you meet me halfway with the diet, exercise, sleep, and stress. And together, very powerful. 
But just me giving you testosterone and you sitting on the couch and eating chips is not going to help us very much. So that's why So weight loss is very important. You, sleep is very important. Remember, if you sleep deprive somebody, they will see a significant decline in their testosterone production because the majority of our testosterone is produced at night when we sleep. We have our highest levels in the morning. So you want to make sure that they're getting their sleep and stress will also shut down uh, testosterone as well. So these are very important things to remember when you're trying to increase your natural testosterone. Which foods are your favorite foods when they come to testosterone? It's the bottom Yeah, the I, I'm much bigger on less processed foods. So any, I tell patients, if it comes from a machine, like a chip, I don't want you taking anything less processed foods. I want you on higher protein and less carbohydrates. That's the key. Higher protein, less carbohydrates. You know, most of the carbohydrates that we have in the U.S. are refined, and they're not, and they're, and they're, you know, typically the carbohydrate syndrome is where patients are gaining a lot of their obesity and metabolic syndrome. So less carbohydrates, more protein, and less processed foods is very important. Well, absolutely. So, doctor, since we're talking about testosterone, and if we have to link it with libido now, and also talk about the impact, I mean, fertility, we spoke about that. You know, so how does testosterone play a role in libido, premature ejaculation, and, you know, even erectile dysfunction? Yes. So there is an amazing study that just came out this past Friday. So in the U.S., we have a, a trial called the Traverse Trial. And back in 2015, uh, the FDA gave guidance and said, look, there may be some concern that testosterone may cause a cardiovascular event. We would like to have a large study, 6,000 patients, five years to make sure that patients who take testosterone do not have a heart attack, cardiovascular event. That study, I was involved. I was one of the authors in this trial. And we published the study in June this year, 2023, showing no increase in cardiovascular events. Great. But we had five secondary endpoints, and one of them was sexual function. And we published that one this past Friday, which just came out. And in this large study of 5,000 patients, we showed that testosterone increases libido, but it does not improve erectile function as monotherapy. That's a very important point. If a patient comes into my office and says, I have erectile dysfunction, I should not say take testosterone and that will solve your problem. Mm -hmm. It will help. And it can be used in conjunction with medications like we call Viagra, Levitra, Cialis. But as monotherapy, it should not be used. In 2018, I was involved in something called the AUA-ED guidelines, and we published the same thing. As monotherapy, you should not give testosterone in combination. It's very effective. But for libido, there's no question in men and women, it significantly increases desire for sex. But I tell patients this, when you come and see me, they expect if you're giving the testosterone, the libido is absolutely going to improve. Everything's fixed. That's not true. Testosterone is just a piece of the pie. What about your relationship with your partner? What about your fatigue? What about your energy? What about your stress? You know, what about we call neuro, we call um, neurotransmitters, dopamine, norepinephrine are very important. I don't know if you know this, and we hopefully we'll talk about this. In the United States, something interesting happened in 2015. In 2015, the first drug ever for women strictly to increase their desire for sex came out. The trade name is called Philbantrin. We call it ADE. So she takes it every day and all it's supposed to do, FDA approved, makes her want to have sex. That's it. And what it does is it increases dopamine in the brain, increases norepinephrine in the brain and decreases serotonin. So several years later, I went to the FDA and I said, I would like to give this to men. Men and women are not that different. I would like to do a clinical trial. 
And after uh, so, uh, so some time, they gave me the IND. And so we have a trial where we give them the men placebo or this med medication to raise the dopamine, raise the norepinephrine, decrease serotonin, and that increases their desire for sex. So it's not just testosterone. Maybe we need to add neurotransmitters. Maybe we need lifestyle modification. Maybe we need a sex therapist, a, a mental therapist to help with the relationship. It's multifactorial. And I, I think the take-home message, I hope people realize it, it's not just give me the pill and my libido will come back, you know? All right, that's great. So doctor, I wanted to talk about premature ejaculation. This is a problem a lot of men have. They don't talk about it. It spoils relationships. They don't have the confidence to discuss it with their partners. You know, how do you handle these cases? And what's your best advice to people? And, and also like, you know, I mean, a lot of people get confused. Like we, we've, we've put people into buckets, like people who consume a lot of pornography. We see a direct yes. act, you know, on, and of course it's psychosomatic, it's psychological. Then of course you did mention fatigue, you know, sleep deprivation, relationship problems, you know, so while they need all of the methods you spoke about, like maybe a therapist or medication, a combination of medication, lifestyle mod modifications, why does this happen? And it's happening in younger men today, you know, before. And, and in fact, in fact, there are beautiful studies where we see men very sexually active in their 60s and even in their early 70s, compared to a lot of people in their 30s and 40s. And today it's coming into the early 25s. What's changing and what are some of the tips that you would give people or advice that you would give people to, you know, kind of address this? Yes. Great question, Luke. So remember this, 30%. 30% of men suffer from premature ejaculation. That is a lot of men. That is a lot of men. And only 9% will seek some kind of medical therapy. And so that's very concerning. So when a man comes in with premature ejaculation, you have to ask yourself one simple question. Is this acquired or lifelong? Has he had this whole life or was everything going great till he was 40 and then something changed, right? And in both cases, they have to have three criteria. One is that they have to have at least be bothered by the situation. If they don't, if they're not bothered, it doesn't matter, right? Secondly, they had to have a loss of self-control. They had, they tried to control it, but they couldn't. And third, there's a time factor. And typically we will say less than two minutes. So if they ejaculate less than two minutes, um, that's an issue for the uh, lifelong. If it's acquired, it's 50% of what they're used to. So if they say, I used to ejaculate in 20 minutes and now it's 10 minutes, it's a problem. So they must feel to have all these criteria. And these patients are really psychologically bothered by this. Now, the best treatment, one of the best treatments is sex therapy. But most of my patients say, I don't want sex therapy. I'm not off the time. I'm, I just give me a pill. But sex therapy, because remember, the mind controls the ejaculate. So they can teach you techniques. We teach the start-stop technique, when you the squeeze technique, many techniques. That to me is a cure and better than a pill. But if a man says, I don't want to do the sex therapy, give me something else, we say, okay, the simplest thing you can do is a numbing spray. These don't need a prescription. It's a lidocaine spray that places on the penis. It numbs the penis, and then it prolongs ejaculatory time. Other treatments that are very good are antidepressants. So antidepressants like Prozac, Lexapro, they significantly delay the ejaculatory time. But many men say, I don't want to take an antidepressant. I just don't feel like it's comfortable. And then there's some off-label treatments that are, we use a, there's a pain medication in the United States called tramadol that's been shown to delay the ejaculation. And then tamsulosin, 
Flomax, I and believe you know, I know you have an India also for BPH also delays as well. So these are some of the treatment options that we use uh, that will help with premature ejaculation. But it affects a lot of men. A lot of men suffer from this. In your experience, after seeing so many of so many patients, what do you think the top three reasons are that men have this problem today? Well, there's four reasons. So there's we talk about biological, neurobiological. We talk about the psychological as well. Um, and so the main thing is some patients can develop a hypersensitivity of the penis and the glands. That's just that's what they have. So they need the numbing medication. Neurobiological means that the serotonin is too high in the brain, so that can be an issue. Um, so uh, excuse me, too low, too low, because that's when it causes premature ejaculation. Um, and then psychological, you cannot forget, discount that that some patients have a, a, a anxiety with their relationship. They have a new partner. Something is bothering them um, that's bothering them. And then the fourth one, there actually is a genetic component, believe it or not, with premature ejaculation, a small percentage. So those are the four main causes. But I really typically see a lot of patients with new relationships, typically a new partner, stress, something going on that causes them to um, have this premature ejaculation. If a patient has erectile dysfunction and premature ejaculation, you should fix the erectile dysfunction first because many times if you fix the erectile dysfunction, it fixes the premature ejaculation. There is a subconscious behavior that's thought that if a man has ED, he's thinking I better ejaculate before I lose my erection, right? So because he, he, he may not, it may not last, right? So the thought is fix the ED and that may fix the premature ejaculation. Awesome. So let, let's talk about ED then. Let's talk yeah. about erectile dysfunction. Again, doctor, what do you see in your cases as the primary cause and what are some of the best things that we can start to do if we find that we have these symptoms? Yes. So I always tell patients the, the statistics because they're alarming. 40% of men at 40 have ED. 50% at 50 have ED. 60% at 60, 70, 70, 100, 100. It is astonishing how many people suffer from this condition. What other disease affects so many people? I mean, it's really uh, pronounced. So, so if you know that you have ED, the mnemonic I teach the 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 residents is vent V E N T. Number one, vascular, and that's the number one cause of ED in the world. And it, erection is a very simple concept: blood comes in and blood comes out. And you want the blood to come in, but you don't want the blood to come out. So sometimes the blood doesn't come in very well. That's called arterial insufficiency. But the most common cause is blood comes in fine, but it's coming out too fast. We call this venous leak. And what does the patient tell you? He says, I can get the erection, but I cannot maintain it. I'm losing the erection. That's the first sign that erectile dysfunction is occurring. But the other causes are E stands for endocrine, meaning testosterone, thyroid, and meaning neurologic, nerve conduction, Parkinson's, MS. And then T is for trauma, which can occur. So we tell the residents, you look for all these causes. Um, but 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 I just want to stress, there are wonderful treatment options, numerous treatment options. Uh, many men should consider seeing a sex therapist because a lot of erectile dysfunction is psychologic, but the pills are very helpful as well. There's also injections called penile injections. They're extremely effective. Uh, there is also a vacuum erection device. And then there's a surgery that I quite often do or perform called a penile prosthesis. The penile prosthesis was invented in this country in my institution in 1973. So it's been 50 years exactly, where it's an inflatable penile prosthesis where the man has a device where he can pump and it can cause an erection. He releases, 
it the erection goes down, um, but it's very, very effective. Okay. Doctor, with all these pills, you know, what are some of the side effects that patients can expect so that they're aware of this? Because, you know, right. when it comes to pleasure, people usually forget about or usually don't care about what they should do to possibly manage side effects or even improve their lifestyle. So the, I hope that most people know that if you're taking a nitrate for your heart, nitroglycerin, you absolutely should not take any of these pills because they can significantly drop your blood pressure and it can be fatal, right? So nitrate, do not take one of these pills. But these pills, there's two types of pills. There's the pills that you take daily and there's only one called Tadalafil daily. And then there's a type that you take on demand before sex. The on-demand, very important, that most people think I can have a nice dinner, I can have a, a glass of wine, I can take the pill. It will never work that way. It will most likely not work. You want to take that pill on an empty stomach before you go to dinner. So take it at three or four in the afternoon before you go to dinner, much more effective than taking the medication when you get back on, on, with food. Now, I like the most is the daily Cialis because there have been many studies showing that daily Tadalafil over time can cause the muscle in the penis to hypertrophy, right? So that's very important. So we don't, when we say hypertrophy, if I gave, tell you to go to the gym and lift weights every day, your arm gets very big. If I tell you to put this arm in a cast, it atrophies, gets very small. Well, daily Cialis causes hypertrophy of the muscle in the penis at month after month. So to me, it's like exercise. It keeps the penis very strong. So we put the patients on daily Tadalafil, and on top of that, many times off-label, we'll tell them to take the large dose prior to intercourse. And that's been very effective, very effective in many men. Um, uh, the only thing you want to remember also is that daily Tadalafil is FDA-approved to help men urinate better for BPH. So I have two benefits with one pill. Wow. Um, so that's how Flomax also has the uh, same kind of effect. On the Flomax, yeah, Flomax is different. Flomax doesn't help improve the erections so much. Daily Tadalafil does, but both of them are used for urination. You're correct. So they're both FDA approved to help men urinate better. So most men say, why should I take Flomax? Why don't I take Cialis, Tadalafil? Because I can get the benefits of erections also and it'll help me urinate better. Right, right. So doctor, you know, talking about masturbation, you know, there's so much information and we get all these queries all the time. And I, I, I keep looking for you know, more and more information on this. A lot of men come up, they, hey, if I masturbate a lot, are my testosterone levels going to drop? If I masturbate too much, I pleasure myself. Is is it one of the causes of my erectile dysfunction? Because I know how to handle myself. And if, if I can't hit that same amount of pleasure the way I do it, someone can't do it for me. It leads to my ED or my premature ejaculation. Is there any truth in all of this? There is. I think the excessive masturbation and particularly looking at pornography yeah. has been shown to significantly increase erectile dysfunction rates. And there's a reason for this. Because when you're looking at pornography or fantasy, you have an expectation of what sex should be like. Mm -hmm. But when you engage in sexual activity, in reality, it doesn't meet that expectation. So essentially, you're, you don't feel the excitement that you would have seen on the screen. And that leads to erectile dysfunction. So a lot of times when men come in and they have ED, particularly the young men, I say, are you watching porn, right? And they're saying, yes, you know, so you have to be very careful. And also a lot of the men, you'll ask them, can you get an erection by, with masturbation? Yes, no problem. That's psychogenic, right? Because yeah. they're saying with my partner, I can't. So masturbation or nighttime or morning erections, if you get great erections, but not with your partner, 
it's psychogenic and you really want to back off uh, on the pornography because it's giving you a delta between expectation and reality. Yeah, absolutely. And what about masturbation and drop in testosterone levels? I've yeah. never seen a good article on that. That comes up Me all too. the time. I've <laughs> never seen this article this that says, hey, masturbation will drop or increase the T levels. And never, and nor have I seen that being presented at any of my scientific meetings or being discussed. I know that people have said it and mm -hmm. there's been, but I have not personally seen anything that would be convincing to say uh, masturbation will change testosterone levels. Yeah, you know, because we have a lot of people who say that, hey, you know, when I masturbate, I feel so tired after that, I can't do anything. But like you said, there's no study. And that's why I keep looking for it. But I have a lot of athletes, cricket players, football players. And when we keep talking about everything, because our practice is holistic medicine, we talk about sex, we talk about these things, we have some players who say, hey, Luke, I need to masturbate before a game. And my energy levels are fabulous. And we have the same wow. kind of player, the same athletes at that level saying, if I masturbate before a game, I need one hour of recovery to like actually yeah. get my energy levels back. So it right. is it is kind of confusing, I guess. it's It varies from uh, person to person. I have a lot of people also saying that if I masturbate, I can concentrate better for my coming meetings. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of people who say that if I masturbate, I just can't think. I just want to like lie down, close my eyes or, you know, so I guess it has a different impact yeah. on everybody. Luke, like you it. and I should do a study. <laughs> I'd love to do that. <laughs> we should do because that's not found an answer and that's what I'm really looking for. Yeah, yeah we, we talk about that, doctor. <laughs> yeah, doctor, you know what? I wanted to talk about going back to the testosterone and muscle. You know, yes. you know that, you know, scientifically, you know, the more muscle we train, we can also increase our free testosterone. Yes. Even as we age, I would love for you to touch upon that because I know your answer will inspire people to, you know, not probably do seven days of cardio, but really just, you know, start to lift weights or challenge muscle. Yes, it's really important. So when you give testosterone, uh, the more testosterone you give, uh, uh, you see improvements in symptoms, but there's a plateau effect, meaning that if you hit a certain number, let's say five or six or 700, giving that patient more testosterone doesn't necessarily improve symptoms. The only exception is muscle. So there is some data suggest that higher T levels can induce more upregulation of androgen receptors, which means you can have more um, in terms of muscle mass, you can get increased muscle mass. So there is a bi-directional relationship between testosterone and muscle. And that's why a lot of the bodybuilders take it, right? Uh, that's why the athletes take it. Their performance is significantly enhanced when they take this medication. So much so that all the major athletics, and uh, I know in the US, I'm not sure in India, it's banned. They do drug testing. If you have been caught using testosterone, um, then you're banned from that sport um, because it gives you a huge unfair advantage um, in terms of muscle mass. And so you're right. And I think that, you know, when you look at old people say, should old people take testosterone? It's I think testosterone should not be given to old people. I think older people need it the most. They have the most sarcopenia. They have the most muscle wasting. They would benefit because remember, if an old person has low uh, bone mineral density, poor muscle mass, and they fall, they're going to break something. The goal is not to break something, right? Because then you're in trouble. So those patients, older 65, uh, I think those are the ones that need the testosterone the most for the muscle mass and the bone mineral density. Now, that's amazing. I agree with you, especially since you say the study does breaks the myth of, you know, testosterone and prostate cancer, because I know a lot of men who are very, very scared of taking that testosterone after a particular age, 
because yeah. of uh, uh, prostate cancer that, hey, if I have more testosterone, it's going to like, you know, lead to prostate cancer and stuff like that. So since we're on the subject of the prostate doctor, yeah. can you tell us your experience with testosterone, even your treatment of enlarged yeah. prostate and what you see are the contributing factors? Because I know the US right now is huge on prostate cancer in men and so is it in India. So yeah. what, what's your advice on this? Topic? I have to share with you this journey that I've taken with testosterone and prostate cancer. It started in 2006 when I was a fellow and we were taught that testosterone is dangerous, dangerous. You cannot give it to men, particularly with the history of prostate cancer. As I was finishing and we were doing, we were writing more and more papers. We felt, okay, maybe it's safe. Maybe it could be safe. But in this age, starting in 2015, there's now data to suggest that it may be protective or therapeutic in the treatment of prostate cancer. Do you know today, Luke, if you had metastatic prostate cancer all over your body and you went into John Hopkins University and you walked in with uh, metastatic prostate cancer, one way that they would treat you in a clinical trial is to give you high doses of testosterone. This is called BAT, bipolar androgen therapy. And BAT was first introduced in 2015, where it shows that it can cause a 50% reduction in the PSA, 50% reduction in metastatic disease. Who would have thought, you know, 20 years ago, we would give people high doses of testosterone to treat their prostate cancer. So times are changing. I'm not saying to go out and give men testosterone to treat their prostate cancer, but we are learning more and more about the fact that maybe it's not dangerous. Maybe there's therapeutic indication for testosterone as well. So that being said, in 2018, the American Urologic Association, my associate came out with guidelines on testosterone. And the, one of the first sentences under that section says, patients should be informed that testosterone does not increase the risk of prostate cancer. And that's a strong recommendation. Mm -hmm. So that's very powerful. The Urologic Association accepts. The only caveat is, is that if you have a history of prostate cancer, I had surgery, I had radiation, brachytherapy, that they say that we still don't know the true risk in that population. Another issue besides prostate cancer is enlargement of the prostate, BPH. And there are now studies suggesting that testosterone does not increase the risk of BPH. In fact, long-term studies have shown some of them that you may improve urinary symptoms. So, you know, this concern that testosterone affects the prostate negatively is really not founded in good data. So what I'm, what I'm, you know, deriving from this is if we maintain healthy testosterone levels naturally or with the, you know, with prescribed medication for the right reasons, as we age with better testosterone levels, it is protective for our prostate. I think so. Yeah. I personally think so. I think there may be some protection against it. I think there may be some cardio protection. I think yeah. there may be some protection against uh, bone mineral density, osteopenia, osteoporosis. And I think that there may be some prostate protection as well. So that's my personal belief. I think others are coming around, but that is what I believe. Um, I just want to re remind people, when I started in 2006, I used to say that there was this concept called andropause. Men get older, their testosterone goes down. That's a natural part of aging, but that is not true, actually. Andropause is a misnomer. If you take a healthy 85-year-old man, his testosterone level should be in the normal range. The reason why testosterone goes down is because of the acquisition of comorbid conditions as we get older. I get diabetes, I get metabolic syndrome, I get obesity. That is why my testosterone, it's not because I'm getting older. We do know that SHBG does go up when people age, men or women. So that's a fact. So if my SHBG goes up, even though my T is only going down slightly, my free T will come down. But this concept that aging causes the T to come down, that, that is not true.
Yeah, I, I completely agree with you on the metabolic syndrome part as well. We see that in our patients who have diabetes, high triglycerides, low HDL, and of course, men are waist over like literally 40, 45 and women 35. You know, they have even two or three of this. And we also, we also very, very uh, intrigued about the parameter of uric acid, even mm -hmm. in a patient who doesn't have a kidney problem, but it's moving towards the higher range of it, signifying a lot of issue in the liver and inflammation. We see testosterone levels commonly low in all yeah. of these patients. And some of them are yeah. working out. Some of them are building muscle, but they have diabetes and they have high blood pressure along with it. So I, I guess I guess metabolic health really impacts, you know, hormones in all ways. It does a huge impact. And I still go back to obesity. You know, in the United States, I don't know if they're using this in India, but there's a big craze on semaglutide. I don't know if you, people are using the injection to lose they weight. They started using that. Now. They started, yeah. yeah. So that's been a big craze in the US. And, but a lot of people are losing weight. But what, when they start losing weight, it, 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 insulin resistance improves, weight improves. Uh, you know, self-esteem, cognition, bone, uh, joint, less joint pain. I mean, weight loss is not just a T. It yeah. is, to me, such an important part of uh, overall healthy life. Thanks for that, doctor. Doctor, I know you're an expert and I've been looking at your work on Peyronie's disease. And, you know, a lot of it actually, when I started, you know, following your work and going more into detail of what you spoke, it kind of you know, resonated with a lot of patients who come to us and they have these common problems that they keep posting about, you know, the curve in the penis. And a lot of them think sometimes it's a problem, of course, if there's no pain and they're able to have, uh, you know, sexual function in a healthy way with their partner, curve is normal. But studying more about Peyronie's and what you've published and what you've written, I would love for you to discuss this topic because I do know there are a lot of men living with that. And, and a couple of things that resonated when I looked at your research was the autoimmune you know, yeah. connection between the patches and the change in skin on the penis and a lot of other autoimmune conditions that men had. And we could never really connect the two of them, but now it makes absolute sense. We've never really explored Peyronie's as, I don't know whether you call it a disorder, a disease or a condition, but I would love for you to talk about that, what you found in your research and how men can kind of treat this. Are there treatments? What causes it? We'd love to know about this. Luke, such an important condition. So in 2000, roughly 9% of men men suffer from this. Think about it. 9% of men have Peyronie's disease. But if you ask people in the general population, most people have never even heard of Peyronie's disease, mm. but so many people suffer from it. And what is Peyronie's disease? Peyronie's disease is an abnormal curvature of the penis when it's erect. The best example I can give the patient is if I take a balloon, I put a big piece of tape on the balloon, then I blow the balloon up. Everything will expand except the tape. So it'll curve in the direction of the tape. This is Peyronie's disease. How does it occur? It typically occurs with trauma, some buckling trauma. So sex is actually trauma for the penis, right? If a man has a very rigid penis, 100% rigid, he won't injure. It's unlikely. If he has a 90% rigid, 80% rigid penis, he will be able to penetrate, but he's going to injure it because he's going to buckle, right? So that's a problem. So ED many times is the cause of why someone was going to get PD, we call Peyronie's disease, right? And so I tell patients, you got to be very careful. So Peyronie's disease, if you think about it, is an abnormal curvature of the penis when it's erect. If it gets greater than 60 degrees, it's prohibitive for intercourse, right? So now a man has a, a, a say 80 degree curve. First of all, he's extremely depressed. He feels disfigured. 
He yeah. feels less like less of a man. He can't engage in sexual activity, right? And it is these patients come in very depressed. Now, when they come in, we have four ways to treat the problem. I showed them. These are the four ways. One, you can try some medications, but they don't work very well. But I do like using the daily Cialis. Why? Because when I use the daily Cialis, you increase the rigidity of the penis, so he's less likely to injure it again. Because if he injures it one time, he's likely to injure it again. So there's some data suggest that may help with the plaque and resolve the plaque. The second, in the U.S., we use penile stretching devices. Remember, Luke, every part of our body is plastic. It means I can put a weight here on my ear and the ear will elongate. I can put braces on my teeth. Teeth will change in shape. Well, the penis is the same. So in 2010, in the medical community, we started using penile stretching devices. And what they do is they actually make the penis longer, wider, and straighter. And just traction. The old stretching device, you have to wear six to eight hours a day. The new one called Restorex out of the Mayo Clinic, uh, only 30 minutes twice a day. It bends the penis in the opposite direction, but it helps. In the U.S. in 2013, I believe, we had the first drug ever to treat Peyronie's disease called Zyaflex or collagenase. This is an injection that I put into the plaque, into the rock, and try to break it up. And they typically have to have eight injections, and it will improve the curve by 30 40%. And the last option is surgery, where I will go in and put stitches on the opposite side where they're curving and make the penis straight. Sometimes I will need to cut out the plaque, put a patch, or sometimes I'll put in a penile prosthesis. So those are the ways we can treat it. And I think the key take-home message is that many people feel that there's no treatment, but there are treatments. And this population really suffers in silence. Well, I think your message gives a lot of hope to people who are going through this. Yeah, because I know a couple of men, uh, yeah, they, they're not able to have intercourse. The pain is just too much for them. They're, they're unable and they are afraid of more and more injury. I guess yes. that happens as well. And what's the connection with the autoimmune part of it? Can the skin so we, actually, yeah, can can there be an attack of, you know, the penis by the own immune system? This So one the, there's so many theories. One of the theories is it could be this could be related to an autoimmune disease. That is true. We have no more definitive data than that, than autoimmune could be causing it. 2% could be genetic. If your father had it, you can have it, 2%. They're also associated with Dupuytren contracture. So you'll see a scar in the hand, a scar on the bottom of the feet, and a scar in the penis. That's very common as well. Um, I, in 2009, we were the first to show that low testosterone could be a cause. And the reason being is because testosterone is implicated in wound healing. So if you have low testosterone and you have an injury, you cannot heal as well, and it can cause a scar, but also low testosterone can decrease the rigidity of the penis, so it can get more susceptible to injury. So we call it a double hit theory. So low testosterone has been implicated. Diabetes has been one. Uh, prostate cancer surgery, another. So there are many, many uh, causes, but I tell patients at the end of the day, um, I think the most common cause is sex. It's trauma to the penis, particularly if the wife has or partner has poor vaginal lubrication and or if the man has decreased rigidity, um, it can it will cause a, a buckling. And that's an issue. So so take home message. There are treatments. One more thing. This is important. This disease has a very peculiar way of behaving in the first 12 months. Roughly, we call this the active phase. After the active phase, we call it the quiescent phase, the quiet phase. In the active phase, it's constantly changing and remodeling. And we teach the residents the rule, 15-40-45 rule. 15% of the time in the first year, it will get better. It just does. We don't know why. 40% of the time, it will stay the same. 
and 45% of the time, it will get worse than where it is today. So I said, Mr. Smith, this is how I want to counsel you. This is this may get worse. Uh, you've only had it for three months. Over the next nine months, it may get worse. And we never operate until they're in the quiet phase. Pain is associated with the active phase. When pain is gone, it means you're usually in the quiet phase. Mm. Wow. Okay. It's a lot of information. Yes, I know. Oh, but I think it, it just affects <laughs> my whole understanding of this. Yeah. No, I think I think your message has a lot of hope, like I said. Doctor, what's your take on morning wood? You know, morning erections, the importance of men getting morning erections. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of studying the circadian rhythms. And I just kind of think that, I don't know, this is my own, you know, when I talk to patients, heart patients, everyone, I, I, I have a question. I ask them about their morning erections, yeah. you know, what time they get it, when they get it. And somewhere my mind has pieced the whole circadian rhythm. And I believe that when a man gets it, you know, soon after that is the time that he'll actually wake up because like that's the final you know check of the body i'd love yeah. your thoughts because i'm sure you've sure. gone into this in detail the importance of it and what happens to men who don't have it we we definitely get their lipids checked sometimes even a 2d echo because it's blood flow at the end of the day so would love your take on morning wood Let, and let's morning back wood. and let's talk about that so well, i just want to backtrack by saying that one of the best barometers of a man's health is mental health and his physical health is his erections. That is the best barometer because, and we'll talk by that more second, but nocturnal erections are important. Typically a man will get a nocturnal erection every 90 minutes. Okay. And so usually we'll get three to five erections per night. Why is that important? Because if you did a blood gas of a man's penis right now and looked at it, it actually is almost chronically in a hypoxic state, poor blood flow and the average. It's those nocturnal erections that's keeping the tissue healthy. And they're extremely important, right? Extremely important. So I tell patients, and you know, if you're not getting a lot of sleep, you're not getting a lot of nocturnal erections, you're actually a detriment to your sexual health. So sleep in that sense is very important for your sexual health. But if I backtrack, I didn't mention this as well, but um, did you know that if a man gets erectile dysfunction today, 15% of them will have a heart attack within seven years. ED is the first sign of a heart attack. That's been shown over and over again. Several theories, but the first one is called the penile arterial theory. Penile arteries, one to two millimeters. Your coronary, three to four millimeter. Carotid, six to seven millimeter. So think about it. If you're going to block an artery, which one will you block first? Penile artery. You'll block the penile artery, so you're more likely to have a, a ED before heart attack. Men will have a heart attack before they have a stroke. And so we look at ED in a man, a young man, particularly if he has two cardiac risk factors, as a serious issue. This is a first sign that he can have a cardiovascular problem, and they should take it very seriously. Wow. Yeah, so, you know, I, I chat a lot with men, like I said, and, you know, a lot of them are like, yeah, just before I wake up, I get my strongest direction. And yeah. some of them also have, some of them have also mentioned about the fact that it disturbs their sleep sometimes. Yeah. So, and the erection continues for a very long time, like a right. very, very long time. And sure. at that point, not one of them. So I said, what do you feel like doing? Do you feel like masturbating at that point? And the answer is actually no. It's just yeah. that it's there. And, you know, we have yeah. to, you know, shift our position in bed and stuff. So, uh, yeah, so that's a good Look thing. Look at the testosterone levels. When the testosterone level goes below 200, on average, you lose the nocturnal erections in majority of men. So the T levels can correlate very strongly. Remember, the highest level of testosterone is in the morning, at the end, of, in the morning, not at night before you go to bed. So when you're waking up, 
is when you have your highest level of testosterone and suggesting that that may be the most opportune time to have the erection. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Great. That, that's amazing, doctor. That's so much of information that you shared with us. So much of amazing stuff. I wanted to talk about before we get into female, you know, dysfunction, sexual dysfunction, you know, because we've covered a lot with men right now. I wanted to talk about hormone replacement therapy. Sure. You know, you, you did mention, and I, I absolutely agree with your point that men need it at a particular time for the right reasons. What's your take on this? You know, would you advise people to first make lifestyle changes? And, you know, where do you see hormone replacement therapy making a difference in our life? Because there are some men and women who are just living with problems. And yeah. we know hormone replacement therapy can actually make that difference. It can make that change in their mood and yeah. they feel better. Everything gets better. I'd love your yeah. take on hormone replacement therapy. I say, please don't look at hormone replacement therapy as the cure for your problems. Look at it as an adjunct, something mm. to use with lifestyle modification. Any disease we should look at, always look at lifestyle modification first. The goal is not to treat a problem. The goal is to prevent the problem from happening in the first place. If someone's come to me and they have full-blown ED, where do we fail along the track where we could have prevented him from having it in the first place? And how did you? How can you prevent it most of the time? Diet, exercise, sleep, and stress. Now, that being that's easier said than done. But when I give a patient testosterone, it makes it easier sometimes to exercise. When it's easier to exercise, maybe it's easier to sleep. When you're exercising and you're sleeping and you're feeling good, you tend to eat a little bit better. So this is something to help you start the cycle, put the fire, but you have to do the work. I cannot tell you how important to me lifestyle modification is when it comes to diet, exercise, smoking cessation. I mean, there's a lot of things, but the diet, exercise, sleep, and stress um, are really critical, are really critical. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Those are the fundamentals of our practice as well. The four pillars, yeah. you know, everything revolves yes. around that. From a fourth stage cancer to someone who has an acne on their face, those are the fundamentals. And then we build on that. So I'm happy you share that same thought process on that. Doctor, I wanted to talk about, you know, let's get straight into women's sexual health. You know, some of the most common problems that we face. And again, it's a taboo subject in our country. It is opening up though. It is opening up in a huge way. People are more expressive about this, talking about these problems, you know, thanks to the internet and social media, you know, there's always something constructive from it and a lot that's destructive as well. But when it comes to women's health, we have a lot of women suffering from number one, the fear of intercourse. So we have marriages in India where the couple's married, but but they haven't yet had sex for even a year or two years after yeah. marriage because of possible pain, because of dryness, fear. And then a lot of women, you know, they're able to masturbate and create pleasure. But with a man, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of loss of libido the moment, but they can fantasize and feel that. So I would love to talk about sexual dysfunction in women and some of the cases that you come across and what your yeah. advice is. Very important topic. In the United States, 43% of women suffer from some degree of female sexual dysfunction. But what is female sexual dysfunction? How do you define it? So there's four categories. One is low libido. Second is decreased arousal. What does arousal mean? Decreased blood flow to the genitalia, to the breast. Third is orgasmic dysfunction, intensity and frequency of the orgasm. And fourth is dyspareunia or pain with intercourse. Now, typically pain will occur when women become postmenopausal on average, right? So there's vaginal dryness and they have atrophy of the vaginal wall and then it hurts, they have pain. So one of the best treatments in a postmenopausal woman is to give her local estrogen therapy. 
very effective, extremely effective. In the premenopausal woman, if she has pain, many times they may get vaginismus, which is a, a rhythmic contraction of the outer one third of the vaginal wall, uh, does it automatically where she, it's difficult for penetration. And a lot of that is can be psychologic, right? There's a lot of psychologic um, issues that can occur in marriages that don't consummate uh, for many, many years. And so those patients will benefit from sex therapy. But I, I, I always talk about libido, arousal, orgasm, and you have to talk about pain. And the last component, she has to be bothered by it. So Luke, this is important. I have some patients coming. She's a 65-year-old woman. She says, I have low libido, low arousal orgasm, but I don't really care. I'm happy. Then yeah. does she really have a problem? No. Her husband's upset, but she's not upset, right? Yeah. So she has to be bothered by the condition. Many years ago, when I started my practice, I was so proud of myself. I was able to get these men, these amazing erections, great libido, and they would go home and they had no one to have sex with because- yeah. They hadn't had sex in 10 years. And many women, I remember this, would call me and they were very upset. They said, everything was great until he met you because we never fought. Now he wants to he wants to have sex all the time. I don't want to have sex with him. And, and now it's causing a problem in my house, right? Mm -hmm. So I learned very quickly, either leave both libidos low. It's okay. Leave them both low or leave them both high, but never one high and one low. It's a big problem. So this is a couple's disease. You have to focus on the couple not just one partner. There was an amazing study by one of my mentors, Dr. Erwin Goldstein. And what he did was he took men and he put them on Levitra uh, and he basically gave them Levitra or Le, uh, a, a placebo. And he said, I don't want to meet your wife, but I want to give her a questionnaire and I want to study her sexual function. And the questionnaire is called the FSFI. And what he found was if he gave the men placebo, the women's libido and sexual function did not improve. But if he gave the man Levitra, the women's libido, arousal, orgasm significantly improved. So indirectly, if I treat one partner, I'm actually really treating the other. So if I treat a man's wife, if I skyrocket her libido, I'm actually improving his erectile function. So the please don't treat one person when it comes to sex. Treat the couple. It's much, much more effective. Wow. Wow. Another another question on uh, women's. We, we spoke about pornography and men. I also want to bring up the topic of pornography and women. Because, yeah. you know, we have a lot of women, a lot of men who come to us and they come to us as couples sometimes. And, you know, a lot of what we do ends up in a bit of life coaching as well, because while the doctors yeah. are treating the symptom, we're addressing root causes. We also find that, you know, a man is like, hey, it's literally impossible to pleasure my wife. Like it just takes so long and all of that stuff. And sometimes when we separate the two and we talk, you know, a lot of women have said, you know, Luke, I've watched pornography. I read erotica and all of that stuff. And sometimes, you know, I can masturbate myself to an orgasm very, very quickly. But when I'm having intercourse with my partner, you know, everything I've seen in porn or read in erotica, it doesn't play up. Like you said, it's, it's the right. wrong mark. And it's a delayed, very, very delayed orgasm, which becomes frustrating for the woman and right. for the men. Have you seen these kind of cases? And same phenomenon, happens? same phenomenon, although more men tend to watch pornography than women, but the same phenomenon occurs, Luke, in the sense that you have expectation versus reality. And so she's seeing this beautiful fantasy on TV and everything looks amazing. But in reality, when she is engaging in sexual activity with her husband, that's not what it is, right? And so that delta and difference causes an inability to achieve orgasm uh, or to, and, and so that's an issue. And so, you know, again, that's where a sex therapist, I'm telling you, is so powerful for the couple, particularly if she does sex therapy as a couple for both of them. It's very, very effective. 
Um, but, you know, I, I just want to go back to this more female sexual dysfunction. It's very important to realize that it's not just about giving her a medication or testosterone. We do use a lot of testosterone in women, but she has a triangle. The triangle is testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, three hormones. Outside the triangle, I call it the thyroid, the cortisol. You can look at the growth hormone, the outside triangle. And then the very outside, we say the umbrella is lifestyle modification. Many women are on antidepressants. It will shut down the libido, right, significantly. Uh, if she's overweight and she loses weight, her self-esteem goes up and her libido goes up. So it's a little more detailed than we use a pelvic floor therapist, sex therapist. It's not just like giving her, like in a man, Viagra and testosterone. It's yeah. a little more, it's more complex. Okay. I'd love to talk about, you know, so what are some of your tips if women have to improve? Let, let's just talk about, you know, like you said, sexual function, healthy sexual function. What are some of the things right. that women should do? And I would love to talk about hormone replacement therapy and women going through menopause or post-menopause. Can it really, really help women through that difficult phase? I think it absolutely can. And many women who are in the, the menopause goes through 52 years of age in the United States. So roughly after 52 years of age, most women go through menopause. Some women have a profound negative effect. I mean, the hot flashes, the sweats, the poor sleep, it can have a, a significant impact. And putting these women on uh, hormone replacement therapy makes a difference. But most uh, gynecologists will only give the estrogen and the progesterone. They will not give the T. And I think that's the third most important part. It helps with the libido, bone mineral density. So we talk about all three. There have been some discussions on some increased risk with estrogen and progesterone that came out in 2003. Later in 2013, they found out that it may not be that risky, particularly if you use it between the ages of 50 and 60 in less than five years. So, so we have the discussion with them, but I do think when it comes to libido and sexual function, testosterone and estrogen play a very important role. Think about this. When a woman is going to, I want to show the importance of how important testosterone is. Testosterone uh, is present and declines as women age. 50% of a woman's testosterone comes from her ovaries. 50% comes from her adrenals. In men, it's different. In men, 90% come from the testicles and only 10% come from the adrenals. But when she goes through uh, 20 years, she starts getting older and older. The adrenals start to go down in testosterone, in testosterone production. And when she goes through menopause, there's a precipitous drop in her testosterone. So it's not surprising her libido goes down. Now she starts getting vaginal atrophy. So now she has no libido and she has pain. How is she gonna be interested in engaging in sexual activity unless you address both those issues? Uh, the most interesting book thing I saw in a physiology book. So when a woman ovulates, there's only 12 to 24 hours where the egg is available. That's it, 12 to 24 hours. And if you look what's happening just during the 12 to 24 hours, the human body, skyrockets testosterone for 12 to 24 hours and comes down during the ovulation. So I think it's just nature's way of telling her, you know, she's ovulating. So very important testosterone for libido. Wow. Yeah, but you're right about that because you're right. Post-menopause, the estrogen levels are also going to drastically fall. So you have your estrogen falling, your T falling, and that's why we see a, a spike in osteoporosis, osteopenia post yes. that as well. Wow, that's interesting. So a woman who's gone through a hysterectomy, you know, removed the ovaries and all of that stuff, hormone replacement, and at a younger age, especially, you know, in the early 40s, or sometimes even in mid 35s, because of certain cancers or endometriosis, hormone replacement therapy can actually serve as a crutch through that process. 
It can, and you don't have to use the progesterone if she had her uterus removed. So that's an advantage, right? Because progesterone, you have to use progesterone if she still has a uterus. If she doesn't have her uterus, you can don't, you can just give her estrogen alone, which is which is great. And remember, in the the studies that were published, it was the progesterone part that was implicated more for the adverse events of the estrogen. So in a young woman with a hysterectomy, I have no hesitation in giving her estrogen to get her through that. And I like to add the testosterone as well. You know, there are other things you can do. So remember, in the United States, I mentioned this drug, Philblanserin, which is ADE, she takes every day. But several years later, we had another drug that came out for women. Now we have two, and this is called bremelanotide. And what she does in the US, she has an EpiPen. She injects 45 minutes before sex. It puts the medication to the body and it increases her desire for sex. So that's another medication you can think about because sometimes you don't have to be just hormones. There are neurotransmitters that we can increase to make her want to have sex. Wellbutrin is an antidepressant, increases dopamine. So we use that. So that's available in India. So there are medications you can use in conjunction with the hormones that are work very well. Yeah. Wow, doctor, this this has been amazing. I'd love to I'd love to learn about your health regime. I mean, like it's the end of yeah. your day. You're glowing. You're looking strong. You look you're super too kind. Good. Would love to yeah. know about your routine. What's your daily regime? I understand you're a very, very busy doctor with the amount of work you're doing, the patients you see. How do you maintain yourself? Well, you know, several years ago, I was overweight. I was uh, 30 pounds overweight. And this was um, back in 2015. And LDL was elevated. And I tried the stat and I didn't like it. And I said to myself, I cannot continue to tell people to live, eat healthy, exercise, sleep, and I don't do it myself. So at that point, uh, for the past eight years, my regimen is the following. I intermittent fast. I'm a big believer in intermittent fasting. How many hours uh, do you do? What works for you? 16 body? and eight. So every day, seven days a week, 16 and eight. It's okay. easy. And so uh, part of my routine, sometimes I'll go, you know, 18 and uh, and six, but 16 and eight. Uh, I will, uh, every morning at 520, I wake up. Uh, by 525, I have the gym in the house and I'll, I'll do the elliptical. Uh, and then I'll just do sit-ups and push-ups. Uh, and then I'll do some meditation. Um, and that's my daily routine every day. And if I don't do that, my day doesn't go as well. It just doesn't. But if I do that, I'm almost superstitious that it, it I have a good day. You know, so every morning, no matter what time I go to bed, uh, that is part of my requirement. So simple things. When I do eat, though, I really try to decrease the carbohydrate intake. Um, I don't know. I think you have this too, but I'm not a diabetic, but I use a glucose monitor so I can monitor real time what my sugars are. And uh, it just gives me some positive feedback on what's good for me, what's yeah. bad for me and what I should stay away from. So I'll use a glucose monitor um, and that's kind of kept me going. I'm very meticulous about sleeping, you know, so I really want to make sure that I get a minimum of seven hours of sleep a night. So that means I got to should be in bed seven and a half hours so that it takes me 30 minutes to wind down. Um, but sleep is critical. I mean, it's uh, critical. Um, and you know, all the people I take care of these CEOs, they eat healthy, they exercise, but they're lousy at sleep and they're lousy at stress and they think they're healthy, but they're not, they're missing 50% uh, of the boat, you know? What's your coping mechanism when you go through stress, when you go through, you know, difficult emotions, what have you found to be the most, you know, beneficial coping mechanism that works for you? Uh, exercise and prayer. Ah, beautiful. Those two, those are the beautiful. two that helped me through uh, 90% of it, you know? Beautiful. So doctor, what's next for you? You're working on so many projects. I mean, yeah. you know, what, what's your, what, what's the, what's, what's, what are you working on next? And you know, what, what's your, what's your goal? Basically you've achieved so much already. Like, yeah. you know, what's planned for you for the next couple of years? 
we didn't talk about this, but I, my, my passion is, you know, sexual medicine and it's also infertility. So, so, so as in sexual medicine, Luke, Viagra is not a cure. Mm -hmm. It's a pill and it's not curing your problem. It's just covering your problem that night, but we're looking for ways to reverse sexual ed reverse the ed process you may see this concept of stem cell therapy mm -hmm. shockwave therapy we did the first trial in the united states with stem cells with an fda approved device uh, shockwave therapy we're looking at something called hyperbaric oxygen therapy where we have the tanks patients yeah. will go in to get the hyperbaric oxygen we have something called neuromodulation um, i have a basic science lab i have a lot of residents and medical students and so we work together in the lab we have clinical trials in the clinic and we then try to see what we can do to improve or reverse the ed process and the same goes for infertility. We're looking for better ways to help the infertile couple conceive. Right mm -hmm. now, many times, it's hard to find the sperm. And some couples, some men, they're called azospermic. They make no sperm. So we're looking at novel techniques so we can find it. Because if I can find even one sperm, we can use that for IVF and right. they can conceive. So that's what we typically, that's what I'm, that's what I'm constantly working on and thinking about. Oh, that, that that's amazing. I'm going to keep following your work. And which, and you said, yeah, you're, you're based primarily in Houston. But I'm in Houston, Texas, Baylor, Baylor College of Medicine. That's correct. Yeah, I'd love to meet you at some point. You should come yeah, and visit I, I Luke do, sometime. Yeah, I, I do a lot of New York and California, so Houston isn't too far. Yeah, Perfect. and if you come down to India, let me know. Let I me will. Know. Yeah. Doctor, since you spoke about infertility, I'm going to rob a couple of minutes from you to talk about infertility, you know, because it's huge in our country as well. And sometimes we actually see a lot of people who are resist. They don't want to go for IVF immediately. They're like, hey, what can I do? And, yeah. you know, one of the most common things that we've seen is, of course, the moment they reduce stress or they move out of India and they kind of conceive somewhere else because they're out of their stressful environment. What are some of the lifestyle, you know, uh, what are some of the lifestyles that are hampering fertility in men and yeah. women? There could be a medical problem, genuinely. Sure. What do you see? Yeah. So let's talk about it. Very important. So remember that we always thought that infertility was mainly a female factor. But think yeah. about it. 50% of the time, it is female factor. 30% of the time, it's male factor. And 20% of the time, it's both male and female. That means that indirectly, 50% of the time, a couple who's infertile, a man is involved with that infertility. Now, infertility is not that hard. It's very simple. Either the man is not making sperm or he's blocked. No other option. He's not making it or he's blocked. So if he's blocked, we can unblock you. I can surgically unblock the, the and, and unblock you, or I can go and retrieve the sperm and use it for IVF. If he's not making it, then there's things that we can do to help you make it. Remember, the number one cause of male infertility in the world is varicoceles. These are dilated veins above the testicle that decrease the production. The testicles must be outside the body in the scrotum because they must be cooler. But anything that increases the temperature will decrease the production. So, so our job is to find out, is it a blockage or is it a production? And then to increase that. And now genetics, 15% of the time, it's a genetic problem in patients who have no sperm. So you want to look at all the genetic factors that are occurring. But it is true. Survival of the fittest Healthier people are more fertile, period. Healthier people, and I keep telling my patients, I say, healthier patients are more fertile. If you want to improve your fertility, you must improve your health, right? And that will make a big impact. If the day the sperm is made to the day the sperm comes out of the body is roughly 74 days. So if you do something just for five days, it's not going to make a difference. You must do something for three months. And then I will then check the semen analysis and see the new batch of sperm. And make sure there's improvement. But the same principles, we talked about this before, it's diet, exercise, sleep, and stress. You help me on those four principles, 
And you, you can see from this discussion, almost anything we talked about leads back to diet, exercise, sleep, and stress reduction. Um, and that really is important for the infertile man. Those parameters will help. Doctor, this has been great. Before I let you go, I want to ask you a question based on your experience. You know, you've seen so many patients, men, women across the country, probably across the world. You know, what are your learnings from them? And if you had the whole world listening to you for the next, you know, two to three to four minutes, you know, what advice would you give from the experience that you gained treating all these patients yeah. with your studies, experience, and of course, your gut instinct? Yeah, the take-home message is, is that too many people are suffering in silence quietly at home right now. They're not telling anybody that they have Peyronie's disease, premature ejaculation, erectile dysfunction. They're avoiding sex because they're embarrassed. And they continue to live like this day after day after day in silence. And the take home message is there are amazing, wonderful treatments for all of these. You just have to ask, you just have to seek, it's available, right? And I just want you to know that if you're suffering in silence, you do not have to suffer in silence anymore. That's beautiful, doctor. Doctor, you've written two books, right? Till now. Can you tell us a little bit about these two books and they're available everywhere, I'm assuming, and Amazon and everywhere. They're else. available on Amazon. And uh, so one book is called Recoupling. It's a book that I wrote with a sex therapist, Mary Jo Rapini. It's four steps to better sex and sex life with your partner. Um, and that's available. And then the other book I wrote was Urology for the Primary Care Physician. And I wrote this with my wife and my mentor. My wife is a primary care physician. Um, and so it's just general urology, just what the primary care physician should know about as well. Beautiful. We're going to have this shared with our audience. Dr. Mohit, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. And it's morning in India right now. I can't tell you how energized I am to start my day. <laughs> after hearing and learning so much more, but I appreciate your generosity. You know, I love the fact that you kept speaking about lifestyle and medicine in conjunction. And, you know, there are a lot of people who just push pills and medicine all the time without even talking about the importance of lifestyle. I, I truly appreciate this. And I look forward to meeting you at some point. Thank you so Such much for pleasure. your time. Thank you very much for the invitation, Luke. I really appreciate it. Stay tuned for more. We're going to continue our journey learning, sharing, and evolving.